Have you ever heard of the Idaho Potato Commission? No, I have not. The IPC. We got a lot of friends that love IPCs. It's basically an association of potato farmers across Idaho. Yeah, a trade organization, sure. So this February, the Idaho Potato Commission came out with their own perfume. Oh, boy. Yes, you heard me right. Perfume. It combines two of your most favorite things. Perfumes, obviously. And guess what the scent is? Yes, you're right. It's the scent of French fries. Which French fry? Is it like a Whataburger or is this like an In-N-Out kind of thing? I think all the companies you just mentioned are kind of a little bit lower on the totem pole because the name of this scent is called Frite by Idaho. Oh boy. That's just somebody that didn't know how to say fry. Welcome to Touchpoint a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome to episode number 271 at Touchpoint. It's Chris Boyer. I'm Reed Smith. Now I really want some French fries. Yeah, I could go for some. Maybe a good waffle fry. They hold the ketchup well. You know, they got the ridges. It's able to retain ketchup. Get good coverage. And and we promised last week that we would do a new podcast topic, and here it is. (laughs) Yeah, here it is. Welcome, one and all. Thank you for uh, coming to the show. Would love if you'd give us some feedback on how we're doing, maybe not on this initial part, but as the episode goes, reach out to us on Twitter, LinkedIn, all that kind of fun stuff. And uh, tell you a little bit about our website, touchpoint.health. Touchpoint.health, you can navigate over there and learn more about this show, the episode, the topics we've covered, Chris, myself, etc. While you're there, there's something called the TPS report up in the top navigation. You'll see it there. It'll ask you for your name, your email address. All that does is entitle you to one email every Monday morning with five articles to start your week. So we uh, we curate those from the, the hosts across the network and plug those in for your reading pleasure and a way for you to kick off the week. Again, touchpoint.health. We'll pause here, let you uh, bounce over there, and we'll get back with today's show. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you.
So over the last couple of episodes, Reed, we've been talking about digital transformation. Last week, we were talking about providers' role in transformation, and we talked about digital health and the transformation it's going through. Digital transformation is a topic that's near and dear to our hearts. We do it all the time. We do. We are transforming. Robots in disguise. That's right. <laughs> but transformation is is ever critical now and there's a lot of reasons why and in fact later on in this episode when we uh, get to the interview we talk a little bit about why particularly now transformation is imperative for hospitals and health systems but first you and i are going to talk a little bit about some of the things we're seeing here at the the start well when we're at the start i guess we're already in april of 2022 but some of the the things that are happening with digital transformation. Starting with some predictions from our friends over at Forrester. Report, predictions 2022 tech leadership and innovation. They say, uh, leading out here, that executives spent 2021 making short-term decisions on how best to serve their customers. But in 2022, they will start looking at longer-term challenges, resulting in strong adaptive foundations and creating differentiation. So for 2022, Forrester is predicting first that cutting edge tech execs will leap from digital to human centered tech transformation. That's a lot of words. So executives will leap from digital to human centered tech transformation. They say digital transformation has come and gone. I didn't realize it had already left, but it there it went. It's gone. It, yeah, it's over. Second week in a row, we have to say, we're done. <laughs> Our job is done. Well, there we go. All finished. Um, <laughs> so uh, in 21, they say uh, only 21% of global purchase influencers said that their firms would undertake digital transformation as a key action in addressing changing biz- business models. That will drop to less than 15%. Wow. 22 that seems a little interesting to me because last week we were sharing some other stats from hymns that expressed a kind of a different trajectory that we were going up when it comes to digital transformation. I think it's probably fair to say that we're kind of in a, in a world where a lot of organizations are doing a lot of different things. Forrester does kind of quantify that and says that doesn't mean that pandemic spark tech, tech acceleration is going to slow, but they're referring to actually some of these ongoing digital initiatives. They call them digital sameness and failing returns on IT investments. That's really forcing people to find new ways to get value in this marketplace. So I think what they're talking about is less of the short-term digital transformation we have to do, but more of the long-term sustainable initiatives are going to maybe flatten. I wouldn't say they're going away though, would you? I can't imagine they would. And I wonder, you know, I got to think as we, if we look into healthcare or some of the regulatory, uh, regulated industries, finance, maybe, I don't know how it can. They're talking here about, you know, the shift will establish a new era of transformation. Mm. So this human-centered tech initiatives is interesting. I, again, I don't, I don't hear that a lot in our space. Well, I mean, human-centered design, we know. Sure. And I think that most tech initiatives are focused on that. They kind of underscore here, too, that there's a tight link now between customer experience and employee experience. So I think maybe what they're referring to is this human-centered tech initiative would be introducing tech to connect the employee with the consumer better and make all of their lives more productive using this technology. Okay. 
In fact, they say here that 10% of tech execs are going to prioritize investments in strategic partnerships and innovation practices at three times the rate of their competitors to expand creative and innovative capacity. Now we're looking at strategic partnerships to help us innovate. We find ourselves looking at that a lot, right? Like you're going to most commonly vendors or you know some solutions provider with maybe a new idea it is probably commonly how that's happening, at least in my world, you know, virtual or telehealth or something like that. And you say, hey, I've got this different use case for the platform. Well, I think this leads to one of the second predictions here, which says that the tech talent panic is going to create broad gaps until we find new ways to develop technical talent, both internal and external. That implies, you know, that there is this kind of drive around understanding where the right technology is coming from. They say here, IT firms face the highest turnover across all industries at a 13.8 attrition rate. And on average, it takes 66 days to fill a tech role. So tech staffing is a big thing here to make sure that we're finding the right people to do the right things with this transformation. Yeah, where are these people going? Like, what are they What are they doing? I don't know. I'm just curious about some of this stuff. You know, they, they're talking here about the future fit firms will relieve some of the pressure by using cloud-first and platform-based architectures and adopting a low or no-code solution, really to try to kind of get around this need for these you know, highly technical or advanced skills. Trying to keep talent is not going to be the best way to do this. They say that even you know the traditional firms, they resort to boosting wages to attract and keep talent. But that can have a long-term financial impact on your organization. We're going to have to do things a little bit differently. You know, I'm even seeing it just trying to hire more skill-based roles, such as on a marketing team, right? Like like SEO or UI UX. So really not true tech talent, maybe. I don't know. Maybe some of it is. But it's just hard to find. It's hard to find these folks. It, you know, it, it's the candidate's market right now, you know? right. Third one on the list, the forced rapid acceleration of technology will worsen tech debt for 60% of firms. Hmm. So it says in here that the rush to serve their customer and become more resilient. Firms are deploying new digital capabilities, including online commerce, enhanced supply chain, digital services that power hybrid customer experiences, which is true. Right. I mean, we're looking at the consumerism or digital front door. We're looking at, you know, chat and SMS and you know, all these tools with scheduling and, and things like that, virtual and telehealth solutions, remote patient monitoring, you know, th- those types of things to serve the what, what the customer wants and needs. I thought also, too, you know, they're, they're going to be using different types of ways to increase team autonomy and deliver more customer value by using agile techniques or even DevOps. They say 21% of software development teams said creating a multidisciplinary product team was a top three priority for this year. And only 31%, though, listed increasing the use of DevOps tools as a practice. You got to kind of do both if you're going to make this work the right way. But uh, that is interesting, which kind of leads to the next and final prediction they have here. And this is related to tech execs like you and I. 10% of tech execs are going to be gold on revenue. Uh Most execs at companies that are technical in nature, right, are in growth or hyper growth mode, are under considerable pressure to deliver for the business. And so that means that you have to figure out ways to go faster and work together. A CIO at Target, Mike McNamara, said this, in the old days, it was about saving money. 
Now it's about making money. Does that mean we're now getting into the world where we're, we're going to be spending a lot to get us to the future state as an organization? You know, this is an interesting one because I think this is somewhat analogous to how people have thought about marketing historically as like a cost center. So your only way of really cho- showing ROI was like saving costs, you know, and traditionally that was things like, well, we, you know, had this print magazine that's now an online magazine and now we, you know, save this $80,000 cost, if you will. But they do talk in here about that there's still just a very small percentage, like 10% will have revenue-generating goals as part of their KPIs for 22 because people are still stuck in in what they did last year, right? So cost reduction and efficiencies, which I think are all still good. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but I think everybody's kind of got a role to play, I guess, now in this this revenue component. You know, as we think about it, Reed, as a being a tech exec in in our health systems, the closer we can align to the overall strategy of the organization, I think is going to be really where the the return on value is, and also you know really kind of understanding where those opportunities lie within our customers because our customers are shifting. We have a lot more to say on this, Reed, and what we will do that right after this break. We're going to come back and talk about some of the digital transformation challenges that we have to overcome in order to get there. But let's take a brief pause, and then we'll be right back to carry on with the show. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Madsen of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. All right, Chris, we're done predicting. <laughs> no, our uh, our friends over at Forrester are done predicting. Now we're going to talk in, in transition to challenges. Um, and this is from um, a website, uh, techbullion.com. And it's titled Five Digital Transformation Challenges to Overcome in 2022. So they referenced initially a business wire survey of a thousand businesses and IT decision makers that revealed that while 94% of respondents accept the positive impact of digital transformation and what it's doing to, you know, kind of the consumer experience, only 7% have sufficient resources to implement the deadlines. Mm. 43% consult their IT uh, teams on decision-making, and they need to alleviate other things like a clear standard of ownership and uh, IT decision-makers that feel that the implementation lags on on average by five months. It's interesting, right? So again, talk to a whole bunch of people. And again, this is not healthcare specific, but talk to a whole bunch of people. And the one that just is glaring is obviously the seven percent. So almost everybody said, like, "Hey, I don't, I don't have the resources I need to imp- implement this by the deadlines that we're, we're we're laying out." 
They outline five transformation challenges, and some of them are related to that. But I have to say, some of these are are really not related to the specifics about resources, et cetera. They're a lot related to change. The first one is actually just that, a resistance in organizations to change. People never like change, Reed. No. In general, I don't think people are, are adept at change. There are certain some of us that do like it a lot more than others, but it usually keeps people uncomfortable. And when you're talking about big organizations like the health systems we work at, when you start to implement change, digital transformation change, there's a lot of emotional responses to that. They actually outline ways you can enable employees to maybe feel a little bit more comfortable with that change. Take a little check note to yourself if you're doing these things as you're going through these transformation initiatives. First of all, you have to communicate why of moving forward. Mm-hmm. That always makes sense. Be very clear about what why we need to do this, why it's imperative. It's like kind of giving that vision about where we're headed and also keep that feedback loop open so that you can hear more from people when they react to that. Because if you just say, this is why we're changing and not hear from them, it could get them to be a little anxious. The other thing is about change management. Change management is truly important. And so you have to build a change management roadmap that focuses on communication and company-wide mindsets. That's something that is a lot different than in our health systems. We often spend time in silos. And then lastly, they say, Plan software training and onboarding that equips people to adapt more to what we're trying to do. Don't just have them show up on the meeting of your first meeting of digital transformation and say, go, get them ready for that change, because that'll help deliver those desired outcomes that you're looking for. After you've solved the resistance, resistance to change, (laughs) the, the next thing on the list is the lack of digital expertise. There's a lot of reasons for this. Certainly, obviously, there you know are things like technical challenges, and you know the process is pretty arduous, et cetera. But they talk in here about you know things to combat this. So investing in education, training, upskilling. You know, take the people that you have. You know, what do you do with them? You know, how do you maybe solve some of these problems with with people already you know in house? Sometimes it's it's a lot easier to. And I like that word upskill, upskilling. Uh, and training, you know, internally and, and give them additional tools and provide, you know, opportunities that way. Talking here also about, you know, bridging the skills gap by working with an outside consultant who has the required technical proficiency. Again, a lot of times this works well if it's a project, right? Like you don't need the skill set for a long period of time or forever. You know, you could you could potentially that's where a consultant obviously is is worth their weight in, in a lot of cases. Leverage digital marketing to reach consumers on all platforms. So this includes using oh. paid advertising, referral marketing, SEO, and more. How about mm-hmm. that? We, we yeah. made the article. We're important. Yeah, how about that? In <laughs> um, the future of work, they say, will comprise of a distributed workforce. You and I both are hiring people right now, and in some cases, it's like, yeah, I mean, it'd be great if they were all here in the office every day, but that's just not reality anymore. So you've got to invest in the tools and systems and things like that to number one, attract and retain those folks, but also make sure that they feel connected. You know, as we've hired folks, even when I was at Girard, you wanted to make sure they weren't just off on an island somewhere, Mm -hmm. you know, that you could have them integrated and part of the team. And so certainly that's where things like Microsoft Teams and Slack and stuff like that help. But there's other ways to just making sure that you've got the systems and tools in place. 
You know, I think that's really important. And there's some interesting themes here, right? About this distributed workforce, adapting your workforce to this, and also kind of looking at outside people to help guide you when you need that help. Don't don't think you can build it all yourself. The best expertise doesn't necessarily lie within your four walls. Another thing, though, they stress here is that a lot of people don't let go of their legacy systems. They continue to use these things like old software platforms or old DevOps technologies. It's understandable why, right? Maintenance costs is really one of the most apparent issues, the cost to change. If you change, maybe you limit your ability to be flexible and scalable. And, you know, also don't forget, you know, that sort of the inevitability of of being vulnerable to security breaches because you're introducing, let's say, technology that's outside of your protected walls, so to speak. Really, if you're going to do this right, they suggest here to do a stage-wise migration, start by application modernization that you know can help to deliver the maximum return on impact. Ultimately, the goal here is you've got to be very thoughtful and strategic about the technology that you're choosing in order to make yourself move forward. And let's face it, a lot of us have to evolve, right? Our systems are just not at the point where they, they're going to last us in the future. Next on the list, and this is one that will probably hit home for a lot of folks that are listening, but is the inability to keep pace with the evolving customer expectation. So one, how do you gain a deeper understanding of what folks want from your organization? And we've talked a lot about this. You know, it's what they, you know, they expect from us what they get in the rest of their lives, you know, being able to quote unquote do everything online or from their phone, you know, kind of digital front door piece. And they're talking here about catering to customers with kind of that multi-channel experience, you know, whether they, you know, prefer to hear from you via email or social media or, you know, whatever it may be that they're, they can, they can do that and they can accomplish what they're trying to do. And, you know, those self-service tools uh, and we see things like chat and the self-scheduling as being some of those, you know, primary ways. But now, you know, kind of moving into the care delivery side, the virtual and telehealth, on-demand video visits, you know, that kind of thing is is really important. So how do you know that? Are you talking to your your consumers? Are you getting feedback? Are there focus groups? Are you beta testing stuff and, and, and understanding what they want? And then ultimately, oh, my goodness, invest in a CRM. <laughs> Here's the thing, I, you know, everybody's been on this CRM journey for some time, whether you actually had a CRM or not, you know, you've, you, you've been on this path, you've been collecting information. And so w- what is the best way to support that? And because I'm not talking about like CRM, the platform, it's it's this idea of understanding your customer and retaining that information to better make decisions. And so what, what should the technology look like that surrounds that? And how are you working across departments? And it's not that your sales team has a CRM and marketing has a CRM. And then you, know, you got four or five of them kind of around that different departments use. How are you really understanding? And you've talked about this a lot, but that kind of 360 view of the consumer uh, and then using that to, to make decisions and reach out. Lastly, the biggest hurdle here is limited innovation agility. What is innovation agility, Reed? That sounds like we're starting to throw like marketing words together here. But that really involves creating that culture of innovation where you could do rapid experimentation and prototyping. You want to create that environment where we start to create customer-first 
solutions to meet you know our needs, the needs of our organization. So they say here the way to do that to overcome limited agility of innovation is first of all, prioritize on the most critical problem, understand what's the biggest pain point of your customer, build a gr- solid groundwork and governance to support that innovation. And then of course, implement security to ensure that you know everything is safe and secure when people are going through those experiences. And in our space, that matters a lot. Innovation agility is a really, really uh, important initiative here. It's really creating that culture of innovation, which read, by the way, leads us very naturally to the interview that we're about to run here after the break. Uh, I recently had the ability to sit down with Tom Heilman of the Heilman Group, and we actually talked about how do we create a culture of transformation in our organization? And we, we dove into some of the experience he has seen with hospitals and health systems that he's worked with around managing multiple stakeholders, how to deal with governance and change management, and a lot of the things that we were talking about. He gives some really good pragmatic advice. So let's do this, Reed. Let's take a brief pause here. When we come back, we'll listen to the interview with Tom, and then you and I will be back to close out the show. Welcome back to the Ask the Expert segment of the podcast. And today I am delighted to have back on the show someone that's been on a number of times before, uh, not only on this show, but on some other shows on the Touchpoint Podcast Network. And that's my good friend, Tom Heilman. Tom, welcome back. Thanks, Chris. Great to be here. Uh, Great to be back again. I always love having you on. We talk about a variety of different things, and I always learn so much every time you and I have a chat. So I'm, I'm really excited about today's conversation. It's going to be a really great topic. But before we jump in, Tom, there may be some people listening in that may not know about you, but they really should. So would you mind starting uh, sharing a little bit about yourself, your background, and what you do? Sure, Chris. My name's Tom Heilman. I'm a CEO of the Heilman Group. Uh, we're a digital agency focused in healthcare, working with a lot of the leading academic medical centers and health systems across the U.S. And we help uh, our clients uh, connect with patients, physicians, as well as the, dis- the, the world of digital transformation, which I think we're going to talk about a little bit today. Oh, boy, are we going to talk about digital transformation? It's one of my favorite topics, and it's one that Reed and I have been talking about for years on this show. And quite frankly, digital transformation is a very difficult thing to do in large organizations. I'd love to hear your perspective of this kind of imperative need. I feel it happening within my health system and within the industry itself that we we can't not face it anymore. We really have to go down this path of digital transformation. What do you think is leading us to this kind of this imperativeness of embracing digital and becoming digital first? There's a few wins uh, at our back or in our face, depending on which way you look at uh, the progress here. Uh, One is just uh, the consumerization of healthcare. Um, I know that's always a hot topic of whether it's really a consumer market or not. Uh, But in any case, the patients expect us to behave like other businesses that they interact with. They expect the Amazons and Netflix, the ease of the digital interaction, frictionless world. So we have our patients demanding that. We also have in the world of COVID, or hopefully we're getting to be post-COVID here at some point, um, the need to be able to, to digitally engage because of the distance requirements and cost requirements, quite frankly, for telehealth and other um, access um, options. And then finally, I think for healthcare to continue to evolve, we need to create these frictionless 
uh, patient experiences, also for the healthcare providers themselves. The easier we can make it in spending our valuable resources with patient time as opposed to administrative or uh, hiring yet more people for the call center because of call volumes, because we our digital isn't clear or whatnot, is an imperative kind of from all the axes of cost, expectations, and, and quite frankly, the, giving our patients the, the highest level of care that they deserve. Yeah, really getting into that sort of that personalization of the care that they that they're expecting now. I think they're expecting that from every brand. But it's interesting you started off by talking about consumerism or consumerization. I'm really starting to think more and more, Tom, that this whole concept of consumerism is actually less of a maybe a noun, but maybe more of a, a an adjective or a verb that describes how they're behaving. It's not necessarily that people are out there actively shopping in an open market for the best type of orthopedic replacement. They're more acting in ways where they, they expect to go search for things. They expect to use digital tools to interact with us. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, you, we could probably endlessly debate with insurance plans and government uh, payments uh, do we really have a kind of a free market or what? what is the, do we really have a consumer market, right? And so we can talk about that a lot. And there's a lot of debate there. From my perspective, I think it matches what, what you're saying, Chris, as well, is it doesn't really matter, right? It's what the patients expect and it's how they behave and how they want to interact with health systems, but also how they want to, to essentially live their lives, right? Some folks want high touch experiences. Some folks want low touch or touchless experiences. And healthcare has to be able to provide that. Yeah, that, that really puts that imperative upon us, right? We, we have to do this in order to continue to operate. It's no longer just something to be competitive or to fight against some of the disruptive entrance in the marketplace from other technologies. This is just something as like kind of cost of doing business. Absolutely. But for health systems, that's a little hard, right? You know, I've worked in many health systems over my over my career, and I have to say, this is not easy. No, it's. I mean, health healthcare is is one of the most kind of complicated industries that I've worked with in my my twenty five year plus career. I mean, there's a lot. Not that any industry is simple, but healthcare has so many so many stakeholders, right? If you think about, typically, there's a customer company relationship, right? But in the healthcare, you also add in the personal level of caregivers, right? People who are helping take care of you or who you're taking care of. So the customer and the engagement model changes there. Uh, it's also highly personal and it's high risk, right? And there's a lot of emotion with the, these purchases and these behaviors, um, much different than if you're going on to Amazon and, and getting a new iPhone case, right? So there's a lot of complexity and then throw in a multi-payer model uh, with insurance, uh, government, private pay, all those pieces, and you get a real complex marketplace. Plus, add in a add in a pandemic and a splash of technology changing at light light speed, and you have a really dynamic uh, environment. So it makes it really tough. Yeah, it does. And man, oh man, are we an industry that over the last couple of years, I think we were really challenged to change to respond to the pandemic. And that's kind of built up our flex muscles around trying to do this sort of transformation work. But that seemed a lot more driven by necessity. What I think we're entering into this world now where we have to be a little bit more strategic about changing. It isn't just like, let's stand up telehealth because that's the only way we're going to communicate with our patients. It's now what is the role telehealth plays in the overall strategy around how we're going to engage with patients over time? And that's a different type of transformation. 
100%. Before it was, uh, if you think about physicians two years ago, maybe just a little bit over two years ago, uh, many physicians didn't want to touch telehealth with a 10-foot pole, right? They were very, actually, the physicians were more, were, in my experience, were more reluctant than the patients were. And then we got forced into a world where it was the only way, so it had to be the way we did it, right? But now we're coming back out of it, but people have expectations of for a follow-up visit, or for a low acuity or for an urgent care or primary care, why do I need to drive into a medical center, wait, go where sick people may be uh, to get the information and the access that I need? So I, I think I think you're right on. It's, it's going from kind of the only way we could do things to now meeting the patients where they are. What is their chosen point of interaction and how can we as a health system fulfill that? Now, prior to the pandemic, Tom, I've worked in you know health systems where they were starting to go down this transformation approach, and it seemed like a very complicated approach when they started. This is you know less of that emergent things that we've been talking about, but more of the how do we do it in a more long term sustainable way? How do organizations start to think about transformation in a more strategic way? Well, I think you need to start with looking at your customers, customer experience and the journey that the, the patients take and look at along that sequence of steps. And that's a lot of them. And Chris, quite frankly, it's not a linear sequence at all, right? In terms of how people interact with the health systems and or, or who they're talking to. They could be going to an urgent care facility. They could be going to a retail CVS. They could be going to the health system, right? And balancing them out around among those things. When we look and try to help customers is if we look about how, what is the customer experience or that customer journey they're going to take? And then where is the friction in that? Where, where, where is it difficult for them, for them or for the organization, quite frankly, right? Where, where is it expensive from time, money, effort, or resources, and try to map out what that journey in their mind should be. Many people try to tackle the entire part at once. We emphasize picking where we see the kind of the highest return areas and just simplifying a few of those, having an overall roadmap in mind, but uh, picking out one or two things that we know we could do well and we can be successful for because you need, you need to build some momentum. Two, two broad of digital transformation programs, just they become, they become difficult to get the momentum behind and then they just die. Because that folks, they're not they're not focused enough to show return and then to add stakeholders and and quite frankly get executive buy-in and additional budget resources to continue the ball rolling. Yeah, I was just talking about that uh, a couple of weeks ago. We often look at this concept of digital transformation as a, a big transformative event that's going to occur, which it will. But in terms of how we're going to get there it really is a, a series of smaller incremental changes over time, honestly. And I guess the trick here is, is to ensure that those incremental changes are kind of building on top of one another. If you think about from a chief strategy officer's perspective, they're looking at the entire enterprise, cross clinical, cross marketing communications, cross call centers, all those pieces, right? And if you're gonna have a successful strategy, it's gotta build upon itself. You can't have like one strategy that's gonna move the organization to the, to the desired future state. Cause there's just, there's too much the, the, or healthcare organizations are too large and too complicated. There's no, there's no single bullet, right. Or silver bullet, as they say. So I, I agree. I think what you need to do is kind of create, sometimes there's foundational work that you may have to have in terms of how that's putting your data together so you can make it operational and actionable. Sometimes there's, so there's data, there's content. You certainly need to be able to have things to say 
and be able to support where and to get, get customers the information they need. There's certainly the brand implications um, that are important for the marketplace, right? So there's lots of pieces that need to be put into a tra- uh, into an overall strategy. But really, I think you almost need to create a path where you where you to use the analogy of crawl, walk, run. What are a few of the easy ones that we can show and say, hey, we're in digital transformation. We're starting these three areas first. We know we're successful because X. And then you can show and you can show to other stakeholders, yeah, we made some progress here because it just becomes too easy to be distracted if you don't. Yeah, absolutely. Now, what you're describing to me, Tom, um, and I'm a big fan of change management. This is classic change management at an organization, right? 100%. I mean, the, the hardest thing, well, there's the, to me, the two hardest things about digital transformation are one, change management. Um, most of all the technology that we need is there, right? And it may need to be assembled and it may need to be integrated and, and holes are filled and things like that. It's not perfect, but we're not missing most of what we need today. What, we're, what we miss is the, the hardest part is the human element of it. If you look, I look at, I started my career as a management consultant for Ernst & Young, or EY as they call it now, and you think about people, process, and technology. We have the technology that we need. Most of the time we know the process or the best practices to follow, or we can learn them fairly easily, right? The difficulty is the people and, and the mindset where we're rooted in specific models of thought and how do we change that? How do we get people to change? And then the second hardest part is governance. Once you do have change, how do you ensure that you're, you're consistently leveraging uh, that change in those processes in the, in the appropriate way and then avoiding uh, what happens often with large scale initiatives, sprawl or atrophy of areas because we're not paying attention and we're not staying disciplined right. So I, th- I think those two are the hard- change management governments are the hardest parts of, of the digital transformation journey. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that too, Tom, because you know, we, as we just talked about a few minutes ago, uh, change management is different when you're in different time periods, right? When we're in crisis, we had to change. I mean, it was imperative, right? So change management became like something that we just didn't have any decisions. We just had to do it. I think everyone kind of rallied around that fact and made things happen so quickly. But we're now in a in a in a time and a place where there may not be that much urgency happening across the organization. So what are your thoughts on how we could start to inspire that change? Today, there's a little bit of, I think, pent up burnout from that being in that fire for so long, right? So everyone wants to take a breath, but then it maybe comes five breaths and we're, we're slowing down a little bit. I, I think you need uh, from a call, there's, there's two aspects to it. I think there's a vision of the organization that the CEO or, or leadership needs to set so that people are bought in and inspired by that. And I think the second part is the culture of it. We have to become a culture of continuous change and continuous improvement. We can't become crisis driven, right? Because that's too hard, too expensive, and it's not sustainable. And we're seeing that a lot right now with the levels of burnout. So we have to be able to be focused on the kind of the marathon and not the sprint. And I know we've been sprinting pretty hard for a couple of years. Uh, but we have to get a pace. We can't, we can't just stop, right? I think that comes down to the culture and the leadership of the, the organization. And then also our customers demand it. The patients want to evolve, right? And they want different models and they've seen what the new world can look like. Um, anyone who thinks everyone's just going to go all back into every health system and have primary care visits like they did before and follow-up visits, it's just not reality. People don't want that. So either you're going to change or your competitors will change. 
and they will, uh, the patients will go where they can, where it's best for them. When you talk about change management, it also kind of leads to something you mentioned earlier about how we're now working with multiple different stakeholders across the organ, across the enterprise, right? This kind of came out, I remember when we were doing vaccine communications at the onset of last year, I was sitting there talking to the data and analytics people and the pop health people and IT people and et cetera, when we were talking about a patient communication around vaccine. And it was like this great kumbaya effort. Well, maybe not kumbaya, but it was a great effort where we all kind of came together and were able to solve this very specific problem. And now I have these good relationships with these others. The The challenge that, you know, sometimes I face now is that now that we're kind of in these slower times, we all tend to go back into our own natural silos across the organization. How can we continue that sort of that multiple stakeholder involvement? Well, I think the key, and it's very perceptive, right? The walls, the barriers broke down for willingness to change, but also willingness to work together, right? I don't mean it was unwilling before. It wasn't a natural state because when the ship's taking on water, it's all hands on deck, right? And there was that all hands mentality of like, we have to do whatever we have to do and whoever needs to help needs to help, right? And I think people bought into that. And I think part of what we need to do is keep those interdisciplinary teams and keep that momentum for um, working together, right? And it's, it's even specifically harder and hopefully a little easier as we also have the ability to be physically together as COVID goes behind us. But when we do governance and build committees, we typically make almost everything interdisciplinary. Uh, but we don't always go across like every discipline in the organization. We try. We start with two or three where we have people of like minds and areas of high value where we can get, say, two or three departments working really well together, right? And once you get that camaraderie and that ability to make um, change and to be successful, then people want to naturally become part of that team. But, I mean, life is interdisciplinary. Like, there's no, the silos, <laughs> these arbitrary silos of departments and whatnot that are needed from an organizational perspective, because large organizations have to organize some way and and uh, distribute the work. We, we have to, from a, from to do enterprise change, it has to be across departments and divisions, just just by just by the nature of what we're trying to solve. Mm-hmm. What you? How did you say life is interdisciplinary? Is that what you said? I'm going to quote you on that. It is. I mean, think <laughs> about it. Like so, I mean, we all we're all evolving and changing, right? Like so, anytime we want to do anything, um, it's likely we're working with people who are different from us in skill sets and knowledge, right? I think that's why it's important. Like change comes. And the best, what I've seen in our most successful teams at my company is where we have people from many parts of the organization involved with different skill sets. We actually use strength finders as one of our ways to kind of help people understand where their strengths are and then also understand where the coworkers are and then building teams that have multiple strengths on them, not all analytic or not all creative, right? Um, Cross-disciplinary like that it'll lead to some friction because the the, the the path isn't exactly straight line, but it also leads to great creative output in terms of solutions and, and, and the, the work that gets put together. I think that my personal opinion is that the, the organization is stronger with the diversity of opinions, people, and facts, right? So uh, that, that, that is, I think is, is a critical way when we build these governance is to have that diversity in it and specifically skill set and um, department. I like that. 
Okay, so we talk about like all of these things, you know, this kind of multi multiple stakeholders, how to build some alignment, how to kind of start to celebrate with straight, short, uh, small wins, etc. But one thing I want to drill in a little bit on is governance. <laughs> yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about governance now, Tom. I think that's critically important too, in order to make change sustainable over time. But I think governance is something that's really, really difficult in health systems. Why do you think that is? Governance is kind of like going to the gym or staying on your diet, right? To be successful at most things in life, you need discipline, right? Success is built over time, kind of one block at a time. My, my personal belief is that uh, the first time you lift the weight doesn't matter as much as doing it consistently all the time, right? Or you can apply that to any kind of example of, of things. So governance is really, it requires the discipline and focus uh, of, uh, of an organization and it also requires um, some significant investment of people and executive leadership, right? So governance is more successful when we have key executives involved because they, everyone understands it's successful at that uh, perspective. So it's the easiest thing to cut, maybe second to change management when you're looking at projects or things like that, because, oh, we'll just govern ourselves. We'll, we'll all just do the right things. And if that were the truth, then we would never need um, weight loss programs and we would never, I guess it's a broad statement, but we would never eat donuts, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, there wouldn't be a bazillion Dunkin' Donuts in every corner of the world. And we would never have to, we would never need um, uh, people security or gates. Well, that doesn't appear to be the world we live in. So I just think it's the discipline. It's, it's really difficult. It's, it's, it's work that's not, it's not sexy. It's not glamorous. People often say, when I say governance, that typically a sigh happens after that word, right? Yeah. But it, it's, it's what we need to do, right? Like if, if we're going to make these large investments and try to transform, if I were an executive there, I want to make sure it's going to stick. And governance is one of the ways that it sticks. I, I like that. Again, you, you have some great sayings today, Tom. I'm going to remember that governance is like going to the gym. It's really the discipline around making sure the change is sustainable. When you do talk about governance with people, they, they do roll their eyes a lot yeah, because it's hard. It's difficult to do that ongoing governance. And particularly when you're in a model now where we're more and more faced with where it's, there's shared governance, there could be a lot of competing interests. When you get into a shared governance model, it's sometimes hard to realize that the person that you're sharing responsibility with is actually on your side at times. Flip side of that is often governance is difficult because there's a lot of success. So a system, a tool, a process, a way of doing things works really well. And then we try to deploy it to the, the largest amount of people and, and some more folks want to come in and use it or do that. The issue is that's not always what we should be doing. The other departments may not need that level of system tool process or quite frankly, it's not the highest and best use of that team's time. So governance is often is more often telling people no than telling people yes. And that's, that's a difficult proposition, specifically when you've seen success in one area. Well, why wouldn't we do that same thing in a different area? And the answer is, is that there may not be a return there. Or by the way, there's two other things that are more important than it. And we only have finite resources. People like the and, not the or. So, huh. 
Yeah, that is true. That is indeed true. I, you know, I'm reminded of many times where we launch something very successful for a service line and the other service line comes up to us and says, Hey, we want that. Part of it is saying no, because it probably is not going to help benefit the work that you're doing. And secondly, your customers may not even want that, right? You know, like uh, think of like the differences between uh, doing access solutions for primary care as opposed to access solutions for oncology, totally different challenges, totally different problems to solve and totally different customer expectations. Like that's the core of the problem, right? So we have to tell people we have to be disciplined about what we want to do. We have to make trade-offs and trade-offs are never always that fun, right? Because someone's on the wrong side of every trade-off or at least they're perceived to be that thing. And, and And it also makes us think a bit more outside of ourselves organizationally as opposed to just departmentally because we're all tasked with making our department, our area, however we want to define it, the best it can be. So you don't want to quelch the enthusiasm around trying to improve. Uh, but sometimes there's trade-offs that it's just not that right time or it's not that right budget or, or perhaps IT is overloaded and you can't get through it or a specific department has restraint constraints to it. So um, that's hard. It's kind of like being understanding the organizational view while also understanding what you're trying to do in your area. There's a lot of models out there, and I'm not sure. I mean, I've, I've actually was at uh, HCIC, and I proposed the government's model there, and people could check that out. But there's lots of models out there. But I think um, you could probably argue at a purest level of one's, for, one's better than another one. But the reality is, is if you go to the gym, good things are going to happen, right, consistently. If you, if you, if you get to a governance model um, and you pick something that's workable and not too complex, you'll get good outputs on it even if it's only 80% of what optimal is or perhaps, but it's way better than nothing. So I would I always encourage people to get started with kind of the simplest governance model that they can get going and get momentum behind. Uh, a lot of times people try to design these committees and these organizations just overly complicated and, and then they die under their own weight. That would be my uh, advice is just don't make it too complex. Like I said, if, if you and I both go to the gym consistently ever, for uh, for uh, a year and we're deal- going there, even if we're not optimal and whatever we're exercising on in terms of form or technique, we'll still get better. Right. And the, the same thing is, um, is true when it comes to governance is to get in there and, and to get people talking and maintain focus on what the goals are. Tom, this is such a great conversation. You know, people listening and may want to continue on the conversation with you online. Uh, what are ways that they could do that? Um, certainly they can reach me through uh, LinkedIn. So I'm just Tom Heilman slash Tom Heilman at LinkedIn. I also can go to my website at heilmangroup.com and contact me through there um, or through email off of that. I'll also be speaking at, um, I think, HMPS, HMPS, Shishmed, HCIC, and all the user ones. So um, certainly can connect to me through the conferences if they'll be in person. And I'm looking forward to connecting with a lot of people uh, in real life, as they say. I'm looking forward to being back out and about. Same. I look forward to catching up with you in Salt Lake City as well at HMPSS. Tom, thank you so much for your time today. It has been a really great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Chris, thanks for having me. I appreciate you having me on again. Special thanks to uh, Tom Heilman for coming on the show. Appreciate his uh, willingness to spend a few minutes with you and chat. This is uh, a cool topic. 
just appreciate his uh, his time and effort. The TPS report we mentioned at the beginning of the show, you can find it over at touchpoint.health uh, and sign up there. It is an email. comes on Monday mornings, uh, a few articles to start your week. Also has some quick links in there to upcoming conferences. Uh, so if you'd like to register, uh, that'll lay them out there for you. If you've got something you think we should add to the list, let us know, certainly. Or if you've got an article that you think is worth uh, our listeners uh, knowing about, send it our way. Uh, you can do that LinkedIn or Twitter or whatever's easiest. Uh, you can track this down. So what do you have a uh, recommendation for today? Reed, I know a couple of years ago, maybe, maybe a year or two ago, I recommended a podcast called We Crashed. Which is mm-hmm. about was about WeWork and sort of the the rise and fall of WeWork. Well, many of you may know this. There is a dramatization of the podcast, which tends to be a thing that's happening now. A lot of podcasts are turning into television shows. If you, you know, so funny enough. Yes. And so anyway, this show is really awesome because it stars Jared Leto and Anne Hathaway, some really heavyweight actors that are part of the show. And they go through the entire rise and fall. Well, I don't, we haven't gotten to the fall yet, but um, because it's still going on, it's still a real time every week coming out. But I'm telling you, this show is so awesome to watch. It makes you cringe at times. Jared Leto is such a brilliant actor. He really does a lot of character <laughs> acting in this show. I didn't even know it was him, actually, the first time I watched the, the, the first episode. I was like, I couldn't even believe it was him. But I'm so much like the mannerisms of the person who led WeWork. And um, Anne Hathaway is also has such a great, she's so great. She is just so great. I know you started to watch it too, but I have yeah, to recommend for those people, you know, listening in, they have to watch it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we've started it. And I mean, one, it's just a really well done and produced show. That, and then the fact that it's a true story is just, it's just such a bizarre story. And yeah, they, they do a great job, do a great job. And just, you know, the whole culture of being crazy, which is the big part of like mm-hmm. what made him who he is. Watching it play out in front of you, I'm telling you, it's crazy. It's just crazy. It makes you yep. cringe, like I said, yep. but in a good way. So definitely watch the show. That's my recommendation. We crashed. Definitely worth it. Nice. Nice. Uh, I'm going to recommend a book that I haven't read, so I don't really know how that <laughs> works. But, um, we, we had our marketing leadership retreat, and that they gave us these books. And uh, as I've started to kind of get into it, I'm like, wow, this 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 looks really interesting. It's very timely, but it's um, called Leading at a Distance, Practical Lessons for Virtual Success. Ooh. So as you might imagine, this is uh, fairly timely and this is obviously why they gave us these books. But And I'm just reading from the, the little flap here. But, but basically it says that um, the, the consultants that wrote this book will share indispensable strategies and best practices to onboard leaders virtually, build trust, shape organizational culture, from a distance, enhance top team effectiveness and conduct high impact virtual meetings. You'll learn how to keep team members aligned, connected, engaged, and performing at high levels, all while maintaining accountability and driving business results. The book is a hands-on toolkit filled with examples and insights. And it is, is you know, as I've started kind of reading this, you know, I flipped ahead and there, there are a lot of takeaways, bulleted lists, uh, little charts, notes, you know, et cetera, that, uh, you know, you can take and uh, practically use. So, again, for anybody that's leading a team or managing people, we're in a little bit of a different spot, obviously, than we were a couple of years ago. 
and uh, might get some practical tips. So leading at a distance, practical lessons for virtual success. That sounds really interesting. Certainly one that all of us as leaders should pay attention to. After you read a couple of chapters, let me know how it is. I will do it. I will do it. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, again, touchpoint.health is the website. Find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, wherever is convenient for you. Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.